This week on the show, we report from our experience at a EuroBSDCon 2018, this software, we cover LLVM 7.00's release, and ThinkPad BIOS update options for you who don't want to update just by using Windows. Uh, the HardenBSD Foundation has been announced, and ZFS Send and Receive versus RSync is what we cover in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 265, Software Disenchantment, recorded on the 26th of September 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're freshly back from EuroBSDCon held in Romania, and that is also our first headline this week. So we had a great time at the conference, a wonderful event, and we met a couple of people uh, from previous events, or also people who only go to EuroBSDCon, so that was a good mixture of both. And the overall format of the conference is the first two days are held for dev summits or tutorials, and the last two days are for talks. And uh, Alan and I attended a little bit of both, so um, yeah, uh, I started or helped organize uh, the, the EuroBSDCon Dev Summit in parts, even though I did not attend it this year. Why, you ask? Well, on the first day, I had my Ansible tutorial in the morning, so I couldn't open the official Dev Summit, so I had this handed over to Alan. And um, then I thought, hmm, while I'm already at tutorials, I cannot just bump into the Dev Summit, so I pretty much uh, used the rest of the day also for tutorials. So in the morning, I taught my Ansible tutorial, and in the afternoon, I attended a new tutorial by Niklas Seising uh, about ports and Poudrier. So that was great because uh, he also had even more attendees than I uh, had. Uh, it was intended for beginners that had uh, never used Poudrier before or what the tool was about. And also those who wanted to create their first port and get to a little bit more in detail about how that works. And uh, as I said, the tutorial was well received and uh, Niklas already had a couple of ideas afterwards for extending it for future conferences. So you will be able to see that again. And on the second day, uh, I attended Kirk McCusick's uh, full day an introduction to the FreeBSD open source operating systems course. I always wanted to do that one, but since I was involved in Dev Summit, this always was a scheduling conflict. So this year I... Uh, decided to go to his tutorial, and it was super well done. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. It has a lot of computer systems uh, geekiness inside, as, but he kept it at a level that everyone could understand it. So uh, typically this is a two-day thing, but uh, this year it was uh, just one day, so he had to compress it a little bit and cut certain things out, but it was definitely in-depth going into very deep details of the operating system, uh, some of the subsystems, and um, with... Uh, the backstories that only he could tell from the good old days when it when all this was developed. Uh, this made it a very interesting course. We have course materials uh, with a lot of uh, notes in there that we can you know go over again and uh, remind ourselves what uh, important things were talked about, and that was superbly done. So these are pretty much my first two days of the conference. Meanwhile, uh, the Dev Summit. Uh, there's some notes on the wiki. Uh, Special thanks to Sean Chittenden for helping uh, with leading the conversation on a number of things. Uh, we talked about uh, a number of topics all over the place. 
uh, but including making a list of goals we'd like to have uh, for FreeBSD 13, uh, mostly about making the system, the operating system more automatable. Uh, you know, like we've seen over the recent work to get, you know, new syslog, syslog, uh, cron, et cetera, to have .d directories to make it easier to use, whether it's Ansible or Puppet or Chef or whatever, to configure the server, uh, stuff like that. And also more of the librification, so making uh, finishing libifconfig, making maybe a libjail, maybe a libipfw, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all that kind of thing. Um, also, improvements to the network stack in particular. Um, our goal for 13 is to be able to get to uh, 100 gigabits of routing throughput, or forwarding throughput, that is, um, uh, which is a very ambitious goal. Uh, hmm. But, you know, uh, we have two years before 13 comes out, and it has to work for the five years after that. So we can't aim for something that is easy right now uh, <laughs> because, you know, we're basically planning this needs to be good enough seven years from now. Uh, yeah. So by then, 100 gigabits might be laughably slow. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's good to look into the future <clears throat> and see what things are on the horizon and uh, how to achieve them. Yep. Uh, we also talked a lot about trying to improve the user experience, whether that's uh, better graphics and DRM integration, including improvements to the install experience, uh, and having auto-loading of the right graphics driver so you don't have to know which graphics driver you need. The right one just loads. Um, but this needs more testing across hardware, more people interested in the kernel parts, more people interested in the ports part. Uh, so while we can have the, the DRM next driver, but if we don't keep our XORG stack up to date, then it won't work, etc. Uh, and we need project management, both people and tools. Uh, and maybe communications. So there's actually talk of maybe getting a bi-weekly call set up for the people working on the graphics stack. Uh, we also talked about uh, trying to reduce the number of things that are in the base system, including removing send mail. Uh, originally, the idea had been a couple of years ago to use DMA, the Dragonfly mail agent, but we found that uh, it has some missing functionality that upstream isn't interested in. Uh, we would have to make a fork to make it do what we want, and that's a lot of work. Uh, it doesn't have persistent queues, meaning that if you queue mail and then reboot your laptop, the mail doesn't isn't on disk, so it doesn't stay. It gets deleted, basically. Uh, and because of the design of DMA, it's not really capsimizable or capsicumizable or whatever. Mm. Uh, yep. So we'd be looking for something uh, a little different there. Uh, there were some questions on whether like open SMTBD uh, from OpenBSD is useful. In particular, we're looking for not a server though, just the uh, delivery agent. And so uh, it's not clear exactly where we're going there. Uh, but we itemized out what we actually need, which is basically support for local delivery and for smart hosts, uh, support for ETC aliases and dot forwarding files, and as little else as possible. Oh yeah, sounds good. Um, we'd also like to remove the NTPD. Again, we don't want an NTP server, we just want a client. And we want it to be as simple as possible, although we would like to have uh, leap second smearing as a feature. Uh, some of our options are crony um, and timed, but uh, that might be dead or stalled. Uh, and 
One day Erling wrote TTS NTPD, but it doesn't have the leap, leap second smearing feature, so that would have to be added. Okay. Um, there is a specific note about not removing Kerberos uh, because it's not really because of the way Kerberos works. It's not really possible to have it live in ports and just be brought in. Uh, so that's not really any other way to do that. Um, then uh, one of the other topics, I guess, that came before this was also uh, Core is working on a developer user survey to find out from people more about how they use FreeBSD and, and why, and, and so we can try to spend the effort on things that will make a difference to people. Uh, and so based on that, what do people actually expect to be in the base system? How, mm -hmm. you know, uh, light or heavy do they expect that to be? Uh, and how do we make sure they have all the tools in base they need to bootstrap and get to what they want as an operating system without, you know, burdening it down with more than necessary? In particular, you know, we find that things in ports are easier to keep updated uh, because the release schedule is a lot faster. But at the same time, you know, people miss things when they're not in base. Oh, yeah. So they need to find a way to replace or add, add them again into the system. If they need it. Yep. Um, we've also talked quite a bit about syslog, uh, including having TCP support, uh, the new date and time zone formats. Uh, I think some of those features are available in 12, uh, but not everybody knew that, which is another problem we have in the project. Um, and some talk about getting structured logs, whether that's just even tab delimiting the fields so that it's clear which fields which, uh, or actually going to something uh, more structured than that. Uh, we also talked about, again, more automation, uh, how periodic is the devil. <laughs> uh, libif config, UCL config files for stuff and trying to come up with a more cohesive uh, structure to how we do the config files uh, and a tool like ethtool or something to actually deal with layer two NIC management uh, and also dealing with things like firmware uh, stuff for NICs and also possibly uh, the iflib control interface stuff. Mm -hmm. And many other topics, including getting our wireless stack up to 802.11ac uh, and getting SDIO working so that wireless on a lot of these embedded devices will start working, things like that. Uh, we also talked about jails and beehive, performance, etc. You know, in, in particular, if we're thinking of FreeBSD 13, uh, before the release of 13, I'm relatively certain we'll see 256 core machines. So we really need to get uh, past being able to support at least that much uh, and probably a lot more. And not just not just work on it, but actually work well on it. Uh, we also had uh, a Google Summer of Code Ideas session uh, and working on that. In particular, the project is looking for someone to help administer the Google Summer of Code stuff. Uh, so if you're interested, please get in touch with the core team. Uh, and we talked about, uh, like I said, we also worked on coming up with more questions for the developer and user survey, finding which information developers need uh, to go forward uh, and work on things and so on. All right, nice. There was also a short talk from Dave Cottlehubber about uh, reprising something like red ports to make uh, 
porting stuff easier and uh, in particular, I need to compile this and all of its dependencies on every supported version of FreeBSD on all the supported architectures. And I don't want to do that on my laptop. I'd like to have some kind of web service or something. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I talked a little bit about uh, that afterwards in one of the breaks, um, and he has a couple of ideas uh, to cover that combinatorial uh, explosion of options. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the show notes, you can also find a link to pictures that Olivia Robert took, so that you can see everybody that was there. With a couple of names there, yeah, in case you haven't met us yet. And uh, yeah, in the Dev Summit uh, evenings, we had uh, Dev Summit dinners at two uh, ref restaurants, two different ones, that allowed uh, developers to spend some time talking over the events or over food and drinks. So that was a nice way of, you know, ending the day and uh, talking to fellow developers. So these were the first two days, and the actual conference on the third day started um, with an opening session by Mihai Karabash, and he welcomed everyone to Romania, and uh, then introduced the first keynote speaker, a colleague of his, who presented lightweight virtualization with Light VM and Unicraft. Yeah, so uh, I guess Unicraft is a, a kind of a build system for making uh, unikernels, where basically you can craft a single application into a customized kernel that's been stripped down to only have the syscalls that are actually used by that application to make a small uh, VM that is basically only containing an operating system specialized to run the one app. Yeah, um, and it starts quickly, and uh, yeah. but does only one thing. Uh, and they talked a bit about how they use it uh, uh, and that kind of concept at NEC. Uh, and in particular, I, apparently they had one set up where they have about uh, 8,000 VMs on one machine uh, for a cell phone network, and the VMs are actually shut down, and then when uh, a phone needs certain things, uh, if it needs to ping the network basically, uh, when the packet comes in from the individual edge device, it boots up the VM very quickly, in milliseconds, uh, to receive the packet, answer it, and then shut the VM down again so that only the... Right, having all oh, all 8,000 VMs running all the time would use up a lot of static resources, whereas just popping them up to answer an individual request and then killing them off again apparently works for them. <laughs> yep, very short life. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's a, it's an interesting concept. Uh, then um, people went to the uh, talk, so they had three talks in parallel, and also a little bit of a vendor area. Uh, so the FreeBSD Foundation had a table there, and I spent a couple of uh, uh, you know good talks there in parallel to uh, talk to people and get their ideas and you know what their needs are. So I attended um, the a couple of talks uh, over the two days. So the first one. Uh, in the schedule here is uh, that was switched around with Andrew Fengler's talk um, because he wasn't feeling well, but he could do his talk on the next day. So the first one was self-hosting as an alternative to the public cloud. Uh, that was uh, someone who hasn't talked at a BSD conference before, so that was more of a, of a general talk, or that's BSD specific. 
Then I attended Alan's talk, of course, using boot environments at scale because I was interested in, you know, that last few things that I that are missing from boot environments. And uh, yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting way of uh, using them. Yeah, I apparently, uh, or obviously, couldn't attend another talk during that slot. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. And but a lot of people went to that talk. I guess the other talks were a bit uh, less crowded. Uh, then I went into live patching FreeBSD kernel that should have been on the yeah that's on the next day already, so that was the last day of conference. Um, that was that a bit. Was, mm, it, it was very interesting. Uh, so it started out with a comparison of how it's uh, done in three different versions of Linux because they do it differently in all three because it's Linux, uh, and then they also compared Zen live patching, which is at a hypervisor level, which is a bit different than how you do it at an OS level, uh, mm -hmm. and then lastly how. AIX does it, which is really strange, and you don't want to do it that way. Yeah. Uh, and then talked about the way they implemented it on FreeBSD. Um, there's been another live patching effort in the past, um, but this one does it basically using the existing infrastructure of Dtrace, which already lets us intercept uh, the entry and return uh, of a function and you know, pop the, the Dtrace probe in there. And the concept with this is, you would uh, instrument you uh, just how you just like how you attach a dtrace probe to know when you enter and exit a function. You would do this on functions, and when you enter it, instead of setting off the probe and then continuing the function as normal, you'd actually redirect to a new version of the function, uh, allowing you to basically live patch an individual function uh, in the kernel, so that if there's say a security vulnerability. You would just load this special kind of kernel module that would provide a newer version of that function and the dtrace-like bits to hijack the old function and point it to the new one instead. Uh, and this would allow you to basically live patch a running kernel uh, to work around vulnerabilities or other things. Uh, in particular, when I was talking to the speaker after the, the talk uh, during the break, uh, I mentioned how this might be very useful for performance testing. Uh, you know, if you have a live load on a system, uh, installing a new kernel, taking it down and bringing it back up usually affects the load in such a way that you can't tell if that live load is being exactly the same as it was before. But if you can load one of these live patching modules and that replaces uh, the function with the new version, you can immediately see how, especially with your monitoring and so on, exactly how it affected the load and the, the busyness of the system and so on. And then especially because of the way it did, it did it with Dtrace, if you could unload the module and restore the original code, it makes it very easy to do this kind of A-B testing 10 minutes at a time or something like that and actually see how this code is affecting your live load without ever having to take the system down. Mm -hmm. And yeah, speaking of monitoring, uh, I went to Andrew Fangler, which is a colleague of Alan in Scale Engine, uh, talking about what not to monitor. So he basically covered all the important metrics and uh, gave a little bit of an insight how they, they do that at Scale Engine, um, and uh, also showed you we what what are the important metrics. For example, in Smart CTL, what are the things that you need to look for in all these different uh, fields? There, some of them are more important than others. And that was a good uh, thing. I adjusted my monitoring uh, for that specifically. And yeah, now I have a much better insight into certain Yeah, so things. when Andrew started and was fairly new to FreeBSD, he was monitoring a lot of different things. 
And over the years, he's uh, been able to determine which ones are useful to monitor and which ones aren't. Uh, like we used to monitor the IOPS on like every drive, which was somewhat useful, but it was an immense amount of data because we have a lot of hard drives and mm -hmm. it very rarely told us anything. Uh, and basically we definitely had like alert fatigue where we would get so many uh, monitoring alerts about stuff all the time. Uh, in particular, he looked at um, how to have a better free memory metric, uh, similar to conversations I've been having with Devin Teske. In addition, if you look at just the free memory metric in like top, that number is very rarely high after the system's been up for a little while uh, because all free memory is wasted memory. It's used for caching and other things. Uh, but at the same time, you also need to have a measurement of how much memory is actually available uh, if an application were to need it. And if that number gets too low, maybe you do need an alert because you are running out of memory. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at just the free stat, on a, on a long-running system, it's rarely more than a, a small percentage of your available memory because the rest is taken up by caches and so on. Uh, so there's that. And then after that... Uh, Benedict went to uh, Nicholas Seising's talk. So in addition to a tutorial, he also gave a talk on how the, the current status of the graphics system, uh, which obviously was a bit different than his ta uh, tutorial on ports. Uh, so there was that. Then I mm -hmm. uh, spent a lot of time talking to people. So a couple of uh, slots, uh, even though I might have liked to go to a talk, I spent in the hallway track talking to people, uh, working with... Uh, one company who was having problems where they could manage to deadlock uh, ZFS uh, while running their CI system on Amazon. Uh, and I helped them uh, temporarily work around that while we continue investigating what the cause is uh, and talking to other companies about problems they were having and so on. And even just helping individual people with uh, And one user was just trying to DD a partition out of a VM image and was seeing really bad performance. And I helped them mitigate it somewhat and more importantly, just explain why they were seeing the bad performance. Okay. Yeah. So and then I saw I people sometimes, cool you know, creating this crowd around Alan. So uh, they were certainly happy that he could help. Yep. <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite talks uh, was Tom Jones. I gave his talk, Hacking Together a FreeBSD Presentation Streaming Box for as little as possible. Uh, this is something that I'd been interested in before, uh, but Tom actually took it uh, even further and came up with some really cool setup. Uh, being, you know, a bit smarter than I am, uh, he bought co a commodity off-the-shelf HDMI extender. So this device takes HDMI in on one side, and then does Ethernet out on the other side. And then a corresponding unit takes Ethernet and makes the, the HDMI back out. So you put this between your laptop and the projector. Mm -hmm. Then he used a passive network tap uh, called, uh, I think it was a LAN Ninja Star or something like that, <laughs> uh, to basically tee those packets off to the laptop. Uh, these particular extenders do... Um, multicast UDP to stream uh, the graphics already encoded as H.264. So then on the laptop, you just have to uh, listen on that multicast group, receive the video, 
uh, and he shows how you can do that with VLC to preview it. Um, and actually, interesting, during the developer summit, we did that. We were playing with uh, a little embedded device, and we didn't have an HDMI monitor handy. So mm -hmm. he pulled out the bits of that rig and hooked it up so we could watch the uh, HDMI output in VLC on his laptop while playing with the device. Ooh. Uh, so basically, we're teeing off the multicast stream of the HDMI packets going across uh, and receiving it, and then using GStreamer to layer that together to uh, mux it and, and make a video stream. Uh, and then he had the question of audio. It's like, well, you can buy little audio devices and, and hook up a microphone or whatever. But oftentimes at these, we already have some kind of wireless mic in particular, like a BSD can and so on. And uh, even here in, in Bucharest, they had wireless mics, like, uh, you know, the, the clip on your shirt mic and the little pack. So he bought a little software-defined radio unit uh, and configured it to the same frequency that that uses and is actually able to capture the the voice out of the air uh, from the microphone the, the speaker is already wearing. You know, if you think back a couple of BSD cans ago when we had the uh, uh, a separate company recording the slides, you each speaker wore two mic packs, one going to the room audio so the people at the back of the room could hear and one going to the recording. Oh. Uh, but with this, uh, I think it was like a 25 euro device or even less, uh, USB device, you could, uh, he showed which software you'd use to, to configure it to different mics. So it's something you would do a, a little bit ahead of time, but you configure it to the right frequency to pick up the basically AM radio or, uh, that the, the mic pack is using and encode that to the right, uh, type, pipe it in with, uh, to G streamer and basically construct uh, a stream that is the video from the slides and the audio from the speaker and be able to send it to a streaming service. Oh, while you're giving a talk. Perfect. Yeah, uh, and so I think depending how you configure it, if, if you use an existing computer you already have, any BSD power, oh, all of this also works under FreeBSD. That's important. Mm. Um, so the whole setup, is about a hundred euros uh, if you use an existing computer, or he found uh, a small uh, atom-powered Intel thing that is the same SOC as the laptop he has. Um, so he's already got all the drivers for everything working, um, which is about another hundred euros. So you could build a com completely self-contained setup uh, for two hundred or two hundred fifty euros which is finally getting cheap enough where, you know, we could buy four of them and then send them around whenever needed kind of thing, as yeah. opposed to, you know, a lot, most other off the shelf, uh, setups for this are thousands and thousands of euros and you don't want to just lend these out to a user group or something. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, that was very good. Uh, then I also saw, uh, introduction or sorry, uh, the introduction of FreeBSD in new environments by Baptiste Rosson, uh, which provided some very good, very hard-learned tips on how to convince people to use FreeBSD, uh, especially at work, uh, and basically how not to do it. Because uh, if you force people to do it, they'll be more resistive to it. If uh, they're Linux people, 
they will try the at first they will try to make FreeBSD more Linux like, uh, mm-hmm. and this will just make their life miserable. The inverse is also true. I found this, you know, when I try to do Linux, I always want to try to do it the FreeBSD way, and it often makes my life worse than if I just also learned and and let them do it the way Linux wants to do it, <laughs> uh, and so on. But uh, very good uh, presentation. Uh, you can see a video of that one from BSD Can if you missed it. Uh, then there was the second keynote, uh, which I really enjoyed, uh, which was some computing and networking historical perspective uh, by Ron Brosseruma. Uh, he's been doing uh, internet stuff since before it was called the internet. Uh, and he actually had with him a number of uh, really cool historical artifacts. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's a scientist for the U.S. Navy, uh, but has worked uh, across all kinds of different stuff. Uh, back in 1983, he investigated the first network intrusion and was involved in the network and system security group ever since. Uh, and he did uh, a lot of really interesting uh, talks about kind of how BSD fit into everything and how he actually first got into BSD as it uh, kind of grew into the area where he was working. Mm, very cool. uh, it was a super interesting talk. And I missed that. Okay. How'd you miss it? it was a <laughs> I was at I was at the foundation table and uh, you know. Yes. But it yeah, was, it was yeah, I, I heard other amazing. people talk about it and uh, it was uh, one of the highlights of the day. Yes, he got uh, many rounds of applause in there. <laughs> uh, even just cool stories about how he uh, managed to rescue like the front panel from the very last of the old original ARPANET routers. <laughs> um, because the, apparently they had sold the devices to be scrapped for the gold and copper that were in them because they had a lot back then. Uh, but nobody was going to miss the plastic front panel. <laughs> uh, he also had like the original orange book and then he showed us a stack including, you know, a blue book and a green book and some mm-hmm. other books where they were running out of colors and you couldn't easily name the color. <laughs> okay. Very nice. Yep, yeah, and that was the end of the first day. And on that evening, we had a social event uh, at the hotel yesterday. Um, so that was a, a nice time to sit and talk with lots of people. Uh, I did that for a while, and then we kind of broke out into other groups so I could talk to some other people and kind of spread out a bit more because it was getting a bit warm on the second floor of the uh, restaurant. Yeah. And, uh, Kirk... Uh, Managed to get a really good table by the door to the patio, so there's a nice cool breeze. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah. The, the patio is quite full, so uh, we kind of uh, sat in some chairs in the lobby of the restaurant or the hotel for a while as well. Uh, and then eventually I went to bed, uh, but then realized that was futile because uh, my hotel room on the what they called the second floor, but over here we would call like the fourth floor, uh, looked out over the patio where everybody was still, uh, uh, drinking and talking. Uh, and it's like, well, if I wasn't already in bed, I would probably just go down there and join them because until they're quiet, I'm not going to get to sleep anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the social event being in the hotel where everyone or most people were staying, uh, I guess they went to bed really late. Yes, uh, but it was worth it. It was fun. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, on the second day, like I said, I went to the uh, live patching the kernel talk, which I talked about earlier. I went to the FreeBSD what not to monitor talk, uh, making sure uh, my friend Andrew was uh, getting the support he needed and I wanted to see what the talk was like. Um, then I also went to uh, Being a BSD User uh, by Roller Angel. Uh, this one was very interesting, uh, getting a talk from a more user perspective, but also some of the insights he shared from his work on not necessarily BSD stuff, but um, I think he was uh, running a learning platform for a nonprofit and found that, especially with much younger users, uh, because it's a learning platform, they had a lot of like, you know, 12 to 18 year olds and so on, mm-hmm. that when they, they ask a question, rather than writing a lengthy text response, actually recording a screen recording of showing how to do it, uh, especially in this case, it was using the impersonate their account feature of the system they're using so that the view is exactly what that user is going to see. But just even in general, that video responses to some of the questions got much higher engagement uh, than the text responses. Uh, you know, young people nowadays and they're too long didn't read <laughs> uh, kind of a thing that uh, it was interesting to see the difference he saw in response rate from a video response versus a text response to some of those questions. Uh, but he also shared some tips on just how to make screen recordings without a lot of hassle. Uh, you know, he had a command line thing that he admitted is adapted from one he got uh, from the BSD certification group uh, people. But um, also, you know, how you could make that easier for other people using something like OBS, the Open Broadcaster Studio. But Mm. uh, anyway, that one was very interesting. Uh, And then lastly, there was from Hello World to the VFS layer, building uh, an equivalent to BEADM for Dragonfly. that was uh, from someone who's often in the BSD now live audience, so I had to go see what that was about. Ah, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, in the meantime, I met the, or he also later met uh, or talked to Alan, the winner of our Power Bagel raffle, if you remember episode two to the power of eight a while ago, and he received a little item, and uh, it took a little bit while, but he, he got it, and had actually had it with him at the conference, and providing the uh, power outlet that this thing is used for uh, to charge other people's devices, so if you have one, you know what you're talking about, and yeah, that was nice. Uh, also, during the closing session, uh, Gruff the BSD Goat uh, was handed over to Deb Goodkin, uh, the, uh, who will take it to the Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing Conference that's happening in Texas while we speak or while we record this, and then take it to MeetBSD, where it will hopefully you know, do not too much damage and then find a new owner to take it to the very next one. Um, so that was nice. And also what everyone was looking forward to at the closing session, it was revealed where next year's EuroBSDCon will be. Remember, EuroBSDCon is traveling around Europe in a uh, zigzag fashion, and uh, it was revealed that it will be held in Lillehammer, Norway. So that was uh, interesting. 
so people already started looking for flights and ways to get there, especially uh, how the beer prices are. Alan and I was were just like, why? Right. <laughs> but then we remember it's, ah, okay, those people. Um, but yeah, so in closing, uh, thanks to all the speakers, the helpers there, the sponsors, of course, uh, all the organizers and attendees for making it such a successful conference. So um, there were no talk recordings this year, even though they had shiny boxes who <laughs> could do that. Well, we, um, we- we had the design of a shiny box. We haven't actually built enough of them and done it yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But in particular, uh, during the second night, uh, Tom and I were talking to the organizer of EuroBSDCon 2019 about making sure we can actually get a reserved six megabits of bandwidth to be able to stream the different rooms concurrently. Ah, so this will be uh, live uh, for people who couldn't make it or could not, cannot make it. Um, later, uh, the slides will appear on the EuroBSDCon website uh, and um, uh, also OpenBSD. Uh, all the talks are already up on OpenBSD.org and we've linked that in our show notes. And yeah, so that was a great event. And thanks again for all the people who made it possible. So next up uh, in our items, uh, we not only can't talk about the, the conference here today, uh, we have software <laughs> disenchantment. we did spend half an hour talking about the conference. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's worth it for the people who weren't there and to carry over a little bit of the experience. Um, so this one is about um, why software kind of disenchants you over, over the uh, years if you're following it closely enough. So it starts off with, uh, I've been programming for 15 years now. Recently, our industry's lack of care for efficiency, simplicity, and excellence started really getting to me, to the point of me getting depressed by my own career and the IT in general. Yeah, modern cars. Sorry, it, it goes on. Uh, modern cars work, let's say for the sake of argument, at 98% of what's physically possible with current engine designs. Uh, modern buildings use just enough material to fulfill their function and stay safe under the given conditions. All airplanes have converged on the optimal size, form, and load and basically look the same. Uh, only in software is it fine for a program to run at 1% or even 0.01% of its possible performance. Everybody just seems to be okay with it. People are often even proud of how <laughs> inefficient it is and say, why should we worry? Computers are fast enough. And I have a great inline quote here. I have a Python program I run every day. It takes 1.5 seconds. I spent six hours rewriting it in Rust. It now takes 0.06 seconds. That's uh, an efficient improvement means that I will make back my time in 41 years and 24 days. Uh, so you can see how this level of good enough uh, gets to be a thing. But at the same time, if you have to run this program a lot, then eventually you get to be this problem. Uh, in particular, if you only have so much compute and you're sharing with more and more users, uh, then each of them using 1.5 seconds when they could be using 0.06 seconds uh, very quickly adds up. And that's how you end up with slow websites. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've probably heard the mantra, programmer time is more expensive than computer time. Uh, what it means basically is that we're wasting computers at an unprecedented scale. 
Would you buy a car if it used 100 liters of fuel for every 100 kilometers of travel? What about 1,000 liters? With computers, we do this all the time. Uh, yep. And, you know, they have a great XKCD in here. It's like, we need to make 500 holes in that wall. So I built this automatic drill. It uses elegant precision gears to continually adjust its torque and speed as needed. Uh, so it's going to drill a very nice hole. And the response is, great, it's the perfect weight. Let's load 500 of them into a cannon and we'll shoot them at the wall. <laughs> and that's how software development works. Yes. <clears throat> so then they have under the next heading, everything is unbearably slow. And he says, look around. Our portable computers are a thousand times more powerful than the ones uh, that brought a man to the moon. Yet every other web page struggles to maintain a smooth scroll at 60 frames per second, just as you're scrolling from top to the bottom of the page. Uh, you can comfortably play games, watch 4K videos, but not scroll a website? How is this okay? Uh, Google Inbox, a web app written by Google, running in Chrome, a browser written by Google, takes 13 seconds to open a moderately sized email. It also animates empty white boxes instead of showing the content because it's the only way anything can be animated on a web page with decent performance. Well, I think actually the animated white boxes are partly to make you feel like something is happening on the web page while it's loading in the background. Mm. Distract the user a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it goes on. It's like, what is the website community going to do when everybody gets 120 hertz displays <laughs> and 60 frames a second is noticeably slow? Uh, then I also complained that Windows 10 takes 30 minutes to apply an update. Uh, what could it possibly be doing for that long? With that much time, it's enough to fully format an SSD, download a fresh build, and install it five times. <laughs> uh, and then he goes on to talk about uh, typing in a text editor is a relatively simple process. So much so that even 286 PCs were able to provide a rather fluid typing experience. How often have you been trying to type in your browser or something and had that delay where you start typing and it takes a couple seconds before the letters show up? <laughs> they Flushing show it up. Up all at once at some point, but ouch. Um, you know, modern text editors have higher latency than a 42 year old version of Emacs. <laughs> it's a text editor. What could be simpler? On each keystroke, all you have to do is update a tiny rectangular region, uh, and modern text editors can't do that in under 16 milliseconds. It's a lot of time. A lot. In even older 3D games, you could fill the whole screen with hundreds or thousands of polygons in that same 16 milliseconds, and also process any input from the user, recalculate the entire world, and dynamically load and unload resources as needed. So why can't I type and have the text show up right away? <laughs> you know, as a general trend, we're not getting faster software and more features. We're getting faster hardware that runs slower software with the same features. Uh, everything works this way because it's of, or everything works way below the possible speed. Have you ever wondered why your phone needs 30 or 60 seconds to boot? Why can't it boot in one second? There's no physical limitation that's causing that. You know, we would all love to see that. Well, I would love to see limits reached and explored utilizing every bit of performance we can get out of these machines in a meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, 
with the the speeding up and the performance gains, you are getting so fast, so used to that. Like yesterday, we were buying SSDs to make uh, up for our slow HDDs, and now everyone has SSDs and and wonders. I mean, this is the new standard now. Why are SSDs so slow? So. And this is happening in many other ways or many other areas of computing. So everyone gets very quickly used to speed improvements and make them uh, the, the standard. Yeah, but at the same time, my text editor didn't lag on my slower computer. Right, that's but a the, software blow. The newer thing. stuff yeah. <laughs> does. Uh, they also talk about the size. It's just like Then there's the bloat. Your web apps are 10 times... Uh, our web apps will load 10 times faster if you could simply block all the ads and tracking. That, yeah. <laughs> um, and if you look at the Android OS, with no apps, it's at least 6 gigabytes. Or Windows 10 is like uh, 4 gigs, I think. Well, Windows 95 was only 30 megabytes. Uh, it shipped on floppy disks i think at one point you yeah. get it on it, it was like 27 floppy disks or something um my my set was 30 something but it included like debugging symbols or something right. um so is windows 10 130 133 times better than windows 95 just 133 times more stuff in it yeah that no one needs uh it's like I know we have Cortana, but is that really four gigs of data? <laughs> uh, the, the, and the is speech Android, samples? <laughs> is Android 150% as much stuff as Windows 10? Uh, it talks about the, the Apple keyboard, or sorry, the Google keyboard app needing 150 megabytes. Although I think that's mostly the predictive typing stuff more than, you know, needing to display um, 30 or 40 keys on the screen for you to type with, but... There's more that meet in there that meets the eye, so it's not just the uh, keyboard, but also keyboard plus. No matter yeah. whether you need that stuff or not. And then everybody's favorite punching bag, Slack. Uh, your desktop uh, to do and chat app is probably written in Electron, and thus has userland drivers for Xbox 360 controllers built into it, and it can render 3D graphics and play audio and take photos with your webcam but I just want to have text chat. <laughs> no more than that, yeah. You know, a simple text chat is notorious for its load speed and memory consumption. Yes, we really have to count Slack as a resource-heavy application. I mean, a chat room and a bare-bones text editor who are supposed to be two of the least demanding apps in the whole world. Welcome to 2018. <laughs> uh, going on to talk about that, and they talk about how everything rots. That 16-gigabyte Android phone was perfectly fine three years ago. Today, with Android 8.1, it's barely usable because each app has become twice as big for no apparent reason. There's no additional functionalities. Uh, they're not faster or more optimized. They don't look different. They've just gotten bigger. Uh, and then they talk about iOS dropping support for 32-bit apps and how that takes away stuff. But again, another great pull quote here. A DOS program can be made to run unmodified on pretty much any computer made since the 80s. However, a JavaScript app might break just because of tomorrow's Chrome update. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Web pages that work today uh, will not be compatible with any browser 10 years from now, and probably even less. 
Yeah. Having yeah. used the bad web interface on some switches from a modern browser, I've I've lived this. Um, <laughs> having to go install like Firefox Portable 4 uh, to be able to access the, the configuration interface for older appliances was painful. Mm. Yeah, I don't know whether the software bloat drives the hardware innovation or whether people say, okay, now we have all this hardware and don't that much disk space or memory space. Let's put more stuff in there so that people actually need to have a way to app to update the hardware. And this is the vicious cycle that we're in. Yeah, it gets mm. a little crazy. <laughs> uh, and they say it takes all the running you can do to stay in the same place. But what's the point? I might enjoy occasionally buying a new phone and a new MacBook as much as the next guy, but to do so just to be able to keep running the same apps without them getting slower? Yeah. Um, I think we and also, can and should do better than that. Everyone is bu busy building stuff for right now, today, rather than considering tomorrow. But it'd be nice if we could have all the stuff that lasts longer as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you talk to the to the uh, a little older people who saw the the growth of the computers, they had to be working with that little amount of memory or that little amount of disk space. And uh, now nowadays, everyone has enough, and they don't have these constrained environments anymore, and just use the memory as as they as they like. And that yeah, also, and I think, yeah, covers. I, I would admit the that having the constraints often. Uh, led to more innovative and efficient code and so on. But again, they talk about how developer time is more expensive than computer time. But then we get to the, the obvious questions about uh, languages and, and programming. It's like, so if developer time is so much more valuable than compute time, why are our build systems all so bad that we spend a lot of time building code that results in programmer time being wasted? But we wait for builds to complete. Uh, yeah. It says, um, it, it just seems that nobody is interested in building quality, fast, efficient, lasting, foundational stuff anymore. Even uh, when efficient solutions have been known for ages, we are still struggling with the same problems. Package management, build systems, compilers, language design, and IDEs. Build systems are inherently unreliable and periodically require full, clean builds. Even though all the information for the invalidation is there, nothing stops us from making a build process reliable, predictable, and 100% reproducible. Just nobody thinks that's that important. Yeah, a lot of developers at the Dev Summit were like, oh, another re recompile? Uh, yeah, that takes ages. And they just want to have that tiny change tested and whether it works. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, and build times? Nobody thinks compilers that work in minutes or even hours is a problem. What happened to programmers' time is more important. Almost all compilers, pre- and post-processors, add significant, sometimes disastrous, time tax to your build without providing the proportional substantial benefits. And then Q classic XKCD. Uh, you would expect uh, programmers to make more rational decisions, yet sometimes they do the exact opposite like choosing Hadoop when it's even slower than just running the same task on a single computer. And then as a whole rant about machine learning and AI uh, and the fact that we 
decided that on, on Linux, we need to have virtual machines to run our Dockers, and then we need to have Kubernetes to manage our Dockers that run virtual machines and so on. And a big infrastructure that's also, of course, redundant and you know has failover. I mean, all these features are nice, but can't we just start small here? Uh, yeah. yeah, it has many valid points, and the article is a lot longer than we we covered here. Uh, but it's definitely worth checking that out. Yeah, another one here is programmers can't work for, or sorry, programs can't run for years without rebooting anymore. Sometimes even days are too much to ask. Random stuff happens, and nobody knows why. What's worse, nobody has the time to stop and figure out what's happened. Why bother if you can always just buy your way out? Spin up another AWS instance, restart the process, drop and restore the whole database, write a watchdog that'll restart the broken app every 20 minutes. Includes, yeah. uh, you know, include the same resources multiple times. Ship it and zip it. <laughs> it is uh, the throwaway culture. Don't fix yeah. it. Uh, yeah. This is not engineering, it's just lazy programming. Engineering is understanding the performance, structure, and limit of what you build, and uh, and understanding it deeply. Uh, combining poorly written stuff with more poorly written stuff goes strictly against that. To progress, we need to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. doing it correctly and holding ourselves to a higher uh, programming standard or um, way of you know delivering quality software. Yeah, and they have a great comic here of uh, trying to design a simple house and then getting into the dependencies and the interdependencies, and it gets very crazy, and eventually they get back to just a simple house. <laughs> yep. And it's fine yeah. enough for most people. Uh, a couple other good quotes here are, we must adopt microservices to solve all of our problems with the monolithic uh, applications. Then in 2016, we're like, we must adapt Docker to solve all the problems we have with microservices. And then in 2018, we must adopt Kubernetes to solve all the problems we have with Docker, which we only adopted to solve the problems we have with microservices, which we only adopted to solve the problems we had with monoliths. It'll all fall over and we will be buried below it, I guess. Uh, and then we have to dig ourselves out talk of it. About, uh, a bunch <laughs> of other things. Uh, and it's quite interesting. Uh, and then ends with their little uh, better world manifesto. I want to see progress. I want to see change. I want state-of-the-art in software engineering to improve, not just stand still. I don't want to reinvent the same stuff over and over in a less performance and more bloated way each time. I want something to believe in. A worthy end goal, a future better than what we have today, and I want a community of engineers who share that vision. What we have today is not progress. We barely meet business goals with poor tools uh, applied over the top of that. We're stuck in local Optima, and nobody wants to move out. It's not even a good place. It's bloated and inefficient. It's just somehow we got used to it. So I want to call it out. Uh, where we are today is bullshit. It's, as engineers, we can and should and will do better. We can have better tools. We can have better apps, faster, more predictable, more reliable, using fewer resources. Uh, we need to understand deeply what we are doing and why we are doing it. We need to deliver reliable, predictable, and topmost quality. And we can and should take pride in our work, uh, not just given what we had, 
uh, as constraints. Uh, I hope I'm not alone in this. I hope that there are people out there who want to do the same. I'd appreciate if we can at least start talking about how absurdly bad our current uh, situation in the software industry is. And then maybe we can figure out how to go from here. Yep. And uh, that will hopefully spark a little discussion and thinking uh, on, in people's minds what uh, they can do about, you know, making that better or changing that culture. So, in our news roundup this week, we have LLVM 7.00 being released. So, this is over at the LLVM mailing list here, the announcement. And uh, Hans Wemborg writes, I am pleased to announce that LLVM 7 is now available. So, there's a download link, of course. The release contains the work on trunk up to SVN revision revision number, plus work on the release branch. It is the result of the community's work over the past six months, including the function multi-versioning in Clang with a target attribute for ELF-based x86 or uh, 64-bit targets, uh, improved PCH support in Clang CL, preliminary uh, Dwarf version 5 support, uh, as well as basic support for OpenMP 4.5 offloading to NVPTX. Uh, OpenCL C++ support is in there. It has AMSAN, X-Ray, and LibFuzzer support for FreeBSD. So these are the sanitizers. Um, early UBSAN, X-Ray, and LibFuzzer support for OpenBSD. There is also UBSAN checks for implicit conversions. Uh, many long-tail compatibility issues fixed in LLD, the, 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 the linker, uh, which is now in production, uh, ready for ELF, COF, and MinGW. Uh, they also have new tools, LLVM, Exegesis, uh, LLVM MCA, and Diac Tool. And as usual, in many of these releases, uh, they have optimizations, improved diagnostics, and bug fixes. Yep, so that's so, new LLVM and new Clang version 7. Mm -hmm. And yeah, definitely a thing you should try out. And they close their announcement with thanks to everyone who helped with uh, filing, fixing, and code reviewing for the release blocking bugs. Special thanks for the release testers and packagers. There's a couple of names here. And um, uh, for questions and comments about the release, please contact the community on the mailing lists and onwards to LLVM 8. Woo! Yeah. Uh, good to see so much work for FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD making it up into LLVM. Uh, and actually, they specifically calling out uh, the help from Dimitri Andrik, uh, so he's DIM at uh, FreeBSD.org. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the, the work of uh, a lot of years, you know, bringing our compiler tool chain uh, to LLVM. Uh, and it's still not finished, but we're, we're seeing the finish line, and uh, it's supposed to be uh, a couple more things that need to be fixed, but it's uh, on the horizon. Yep. Uh, so... What if you want to update your ThinkPads BIOS, but you don't want to use Windows? Uh, first, you need to go get the BIOS. So if you go to the Lenovo support page, use the search box to find your particular product number, like the X270. Uh, choose the right product that matches your machine. Uh, click on the update your system, select BIOS slash UEFI, and download the BIOS update, which is a bootable CD for Windows. So when I download that and you have an ISO file, mm -hmm. then you want to extract it. So using uh, the get El Torito uh, tool from OpenBSD or FreeBSD, you can use that uh, to extract 
the bits you need out of the disk image. So this will yep. create a new BIOS underscore update that image file out of the ISO. So now you have a USB stick and then you can DD that file under a USB stick and boot it and you'll be able to install the BIOS update now. From a USB stick rather than booting yeah. a Windows just for update that <laughs> BIOS. Yeah. So these instructions, while they're specifically written for Linux and OpenBSD, uh, the OpenBSD version uh, with just substitution uh, the package underscore or pkg underscore add command for package install uh, will work on FreeBSD as well. Oh yeah, certainly that's just uh, the same. Yep, uh, and as always, uh, watch out when you're setting the output device of uh, DD that not what it says in the tutorial, but what makes sense on your machine. Otherwise, you could accidentally overwrite your hard drive with the contents of that USB stick, and that's probably not what you wanted. Yeah, with DD, you can do double damage, so be careful which devices you point this at. Yes. But yeah, great thing if people uh, want to uh, stay updated on their BIOSes and don't want to spend a lot of time doing that or uh, install a Windows just for that. Very great. And then we have a nice bit of peace here from the HardenBSD Foundation, which is actually now a, uh, a real foundation here. So we covered this a couple of times, the way to where they got uh, to that. And uh, Sean Webb announced here on the HardenBSD website that in June 2018, uh, they announced their intent to become a not-for-profit tax-exempt 501c3 organization in the United States. And uh, it took a dedicated team uh, months of work behind the scenes to make that happen. And on September 6, 2018, Harden BSD Foundation Corporation was granted a 501c3 status, from which point all US-based persons making donations can deduct that donation from their taxes. Uh, that only applies to US-based people, but that's already a significant number, I guess. Um, so he writes, we are grateful to those who contribute to Harden BSD in whatever way they can. Thank you for making Harden BSD possible, and we look forward to a bright future driven with the help Full and positive community. And on the left side, you can see download links, or not download, yeah, download links as well, but donate links of uh, various types for bitcoins and uh, credit cards to donate to HardenBS. So, next up, how to migrate or how you migrate ZFS file systems matters. Uh, if you want to move a ZFS file system around from one host to another, you have two general approaches. You can use ZFS send and ZFS receive to basically serialize the file system and send it across the network. Uh, or you can use user level copying tools such as rsync or tar, pipe tar, etc. Until recently, I considered these two approaches to be more or less equivalent apart from their convenience and speed, uh, which generally tilts in favor of using ZFS send. Uh, it turns out that it's not necessarily the case and there are situations where you might want to use one instead of the other. We had uh, two older generations of ZFS file servers, uh, the Solaris one and the OmniOS one. When we moved from the first generation of Solaris to the second one, we migrated file systems across using ZFS send. This included the file system with our home directories in it, uh, which we did for various reasons. Uh, recently, I discovered some old things on my file system didn't have the file type information in their directory entries. Uh, I think that's a Solaris-specific thing, although apparently FreeBSD has it. I don't know. I've not looked into it. Anyway, 
ZFS has been adding file type information to directories for a long time, but not quite as long as their home directories are old. So when they first created their home directories on ZFS on older Solaris, it wasn't a feature of ZFS yet. Sometime uh, over the years, it became a feature of ZFS. Uh, but it meant when they did the ZFS send from the old server to the newer one, uh, the old files were copied with no files system uh, file type information. Uh, so it says this illustrates an important difference between ZFS send approach and using rsync, which is that ZFS send doesn't update or change at least some ZFS on disk data structures in the way that rewriting them from scratch uh, from a user level tool does. These are both positive and negatives to this, and a certain amount of rewrite does happen even with ZFS send. For example, all the block pointers get changed, and ZFS can recompress your data if applicable. Although not with the new dash C flag, you can actually avoid the recompression to save time. But if you're actually changing compression algorithms or something, you actually do want it to recompress, and so not dash C. Anyway. I knew that in theory, you had to copy things at the user level if you wanted to make sure that your ZFS file system, everything in it was fully up to date with the latest ZFS features. But I didn't expect to hit a situation where it mattered in practice until, well, until I did. Uh, mm -hmm. Now I suspect that old files on our old file systems may be partially missing a number of things. And I'm wondering how much of the various changes that you do in say ZFS upgrade uh, and zpool upgrade apply even to old data. Uh, he said, I'd run into this sort of general thing before when I went from ext3 to ext4 using conversion tools on Linux. Uh, with all that said, I doubt this will change our plans of migrating our ZFS file systems in the future when our third generation file servers start. ZFS send and receive is just too convenient, too fast, and too reliable to give up for rsync. While rsync isn't bad, it's not the same and we only uh, use it when we have to, when we're moving some, uh, only some of the people on a file system instead of all of them, for example. This is why I've taken to try to have as many file systems as possible. Everybody gets their own file system so that I can migrate the ones I want and not the others. Anyway, she says, PS, I was trying, uh, I was going to try to say something about what Sen did and didn't update, but having looked briefly at the code, I've concluded that I need to do a lot more research before running uh, my keyboard off. In the meantime, uh, you can read the open ZFS wiki page on ZFS send and receive, which is pretty juicy for technical details. PPS, since eliminating all zero blocks is a form of compression, you can turn zero fill files into sparse files by using ZFS send and receive if the destination has compression enabled. As far as I know, genuine sparse files on the source will stay sparse through the ZFS send receive process, even if they're sent to a destination with a compression off. I believe mm -hmm. that is true as well, because I think they come through as holes in the file rather than uh, streams of zeros. And so even if you don't have the compression that turns streams of zeros into uh, a single block, um, the fact that it's a hole uh, deals with that for you. Oh, very nice. See, all this stuff is in ZFS and uh, you just have to use it properly. Yep. Time for the Beastie Bits this week, uh, starting with the Beastie Users uh, Stockholm Meetup number four, announcing it early enough so that people can circle it in their calendars. Uh, November 13, 2018 at 1800 hours. 
And yep. the, uh, so same location as the previous times at B3IT uh, in central Stockholm. Uh, that's, yeah, November 13th, and hope to see a bunch of people there. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I won't be there, just to be clear, but I hope lots well, of people Yeah, can. the people who, who are there should see a couple people, yeah. Because <laughs> it's becoming a regular thing, and uh, yeah, uh, Nicholas was talking uh, about it becoming something more uh, mm -hmm. repetitive. And uh, also in the um, users group uh, area is the BSD Poland user group. They have their next meeting October 11, uh, so that's earlier than the one in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. October 11 at 1815 uh, till 21.15 at the Warsaw University of Technology. Yes, so big note is the change of location. Uh, previous meetups have been held at the Wheels offices. Uh, I think now that the group might actually be too big to fit in the office, which would be a good thing. Either way, uh, make sure you don't show up at the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's great to or see you at the university, uh, and I hope lots of people can attend. Yep, and uh, Alan and I know the Warsaw University of Technology because we had uh, BSD, uh, EuroBSDCon there a couple of years ago, and that was uh, that was great. So um, we also have news from the N2K18 hackathon from uh, Ken Westerbeck. There's a report here on the disk label work as well as DH client process. So, um, uh, uh, progress, progress. Um, so you can read all about uh, what happened there in the little trip report here or in the uh, summary of the hackathon. And yeah, it seems like uh, they are doing progress in some of the smaller utilities, but well worth using those, uh, disk label and DH client in particular. So check out that uh, trip report. Um, we also have news about running Mirage OS unikernels on OpenBSD in VMM. So VMM keeps improving and adding more and more functionality to it. <clears throat> but this one uh, has Mirage OS on it. Yeah, it was interesting to see this on the Zen mailing list. Oh, I guess this is on the Mirage OS Devel uh, mailing list. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And apparently with a couple of... <clears throat> uh, changes or a couple of modifications you can make that start on VMM and it uh, seems to be running fine yeah that's interesting I guess we'll see something about this at uh, next year's um, BSDCon or uh, uh, even BeehiveCon um, also VMM and while we're <laughs> talking about it gets support for the QCOW2 format that people know from uh, QEMU so that's nice Yes, uh, this came up at the FreeBSD Developer Summit as uh, something we'd very much like to have for Beehive as well. Uh, years ago, Marcel Moulinar started uh, a library to, to abstract some of this stuff out, uh, but it never uh, got very far. But if there's a nice BSD-licensed uh, version in OpenBSD, we would love to, to bring that over to FreeBSD as well uh, and add that into libvdisk, uh, which would allow us uh, both to have it as a feature for Beehive, but also have it for like MK image and so on to generate pre-built QCAD disk images. Yeah, or import QCAD disk images from, from QEMU one day and use it on yeah. VMM or Beehive. That's yep. uh, an interesting. Well, so so with this yeah. in VMM, you can use it directly already oh, without having cool. to convert it to raw first, which is how you do it for Beehive currently. And Excellent. Like the same to be true for Beehive. Wonderful. Yeah, uh, people get started uh, programming. <laughs> uh, 
Um, also, we have um, beat BSD and security besides information on, on our um, Marius Saborski's uh, blog here that we covered quite a while ago. Uh, or a couple of times already. So he writes that in October, there will be two very interesting conferences at which he's honored to speak. Uh, the first one is Meet BSD in California in October in like three weeks uh, from now on. And uh, the other one is Security Besides, uh, which will be held in Warsaw, Poland. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah so uh, Mario says he's never actually been to Meet BSD, uh, but seeing the list of speakers, I think it'll be very interesting. Yeah, the MeetBSD conference was actually originally started in Poland back around 2004 as kind of a meetup thing and took place in Warsaw and Krakow. Around 2008, it moved to California at the time when MeetBSD was in Poland. Uh, by then, he says, I didn't know what BSD was, so I was very excited to participate this year in an event that originally started in Poland. And he will give uh, a talk about one of his sandboxing techniques on FreeBSD at MeetBSD. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I look forward to uh, hearing his talk and uh, yeah. seeing him there. And so as a are. reminder, you should register for MeetBSD, which is October 19th and 20th uh, at Intel's campus in Santa Clara, California. Thank you to them for hosting. And actually, I do believe that the schedule is now up on the website. If you're interested in knowing what's going to be talked about there and don't just take our word for it, um, you can see. And yes. also... And also, uh, if you register late, you get the chance to uh, be automatically put into a raffle for one of Michael W. Lucas's recent books. You mean if you register early, right? No, no, it's for the late people so that they also have a benefit of uh, still registering. Okay. Don't wait. Register today. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, just go. What you might win in the raffle is is a butt-kicking for being late. <laughs> Anyway, looking at day one of the conference, it'll start with uh, the opening keynote by Chris Moore about using TrueOS to bootstrap a FreeBSD-based project, uh, talking about using their tooling to actually build your own FreeBSD flavor, basically. Uh, and then Intel will give a talk about Intel and FreeBSD working better together. Uh, then we'll have some unconference activity. We're still working on the details for that, uh, but probably a mixture of boffs, speed geeking, uh, and other such things. Uh, and then uh, lunch, after lunch, uh, they'll be talking about uh, detecting bugs in software using the sanitizer stuff from LLVM that we talked about previously. Uh, more unconference activity, I think one of which will be a ZFS panel discussion where you can ask questions and also just hear from a panel of ZFS experts. So that should be fun. Um, then Andrew Flangler will give an updated version of his what not to monitor talk. So if you thought it was good in Europe, uh, it'll be even better then. I have given him some feedback on how to make it even better. Uh, and then we'll have some more unconference stuff. Uh, big part of the unconference idea is to get everybody who's attending to share information, not just the speakers. Uh, yeah. So you'll get uh, a lot, you know, it's basically a slightly more codified version of uh, the hallway track. Uh and then there will be a closing session. Uh, then um, some kind of social event or something from six to ten, and then there will be uh, some hacking to be done afterwards. Mm, Day two, nice. after we welcome you back, uh, we will have our keynote uh, by Michael Lucas on why you should use BSD. Um, 
more on conference stuff. Devin Teske talking about uh, DTrace and DWatch in production uh, and actually making more usable tools for that kind of stuff. After lunch, uh, Clifford William will talk about a curmudgeon's language selection criteria, uh, why I don't just write everything in Go or Rust. Um, Marius Saborski talking about best practices for sandboxing applications, uh, more unconferenciness, uh, a nice break, and then Nick uh, Princip talking about tales of a demon town performance peddler, why it depends, and what you can do about it, and getting more performance out of FreeBSD and ZFS. Uh, and, oh, and then actually it's, the social event will be on the second day, but we'll probably do something for dinner on the first day as well, uh, followed by more mini hackathon. Yep, so that's definitely a uh, reason to go. And next up, uh, we have a tweet from Colin Percival, who's uh, still chipping away at the boot times uh, on the EC2 instance or general FreeBSD. So this one has that he reduced the startup time in a FreeBSD 11.2 VM uh, from... Well, so 11.2 yeah. was 10.6 seconds, basically. 10,600 milliseconds. Right. With his yeah. changes, a FreeBSD 12 Alpha 6 kernel on the same hardware takes only 4.7 seconds or 4,700 milliseconds. Yeah, if that's not an improvement uh, that you can de definitely see and, and feel. Six uh, seconds or more than, you know, half as long. And he provides flame graphs to prove that and how it changed. So you can definitely see that there's a lot of uh, old stuff uh, missing uh, from boot times. And yeah, and he keeps still improving. So some of these changes will also be found in uh, non-EC2 systems. So it's general boot time that is reduced. And uh, there is more optimizations coming down the pipe. Yeah. Uh, in particular, he says there's about 2,000 milliseconds more that can be shaved off once they figure out a better way to calibrate the clock rather than sleeping for 1,000 seconds and seeing how close to reality that 1,000 milliseconds was. Yeah. See, you can reverse the trends from bloatware to actually uh, reducing boot times, even uh, though this is something not many servers do. But in case they do, boot time is quicker. And also, uh, speaking about releases, something ends, and that is FreeBSD 11.2 reaching its end of life. Nope, 11.1. Ah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, 11.2 will be around for a while. <laughs> Oops, I'm already <laughs> ahead of myself. Yeah. So... Uh, as is the process for all uh, FreeBSD 11 and later releases, uh, the old version uh, ends of life three months after the new version is released. So because 11.2 came out at the end of June 2018, uh, you have uh, until September 30th to get to FreeBSD 11.2 from 11.1 uh, before end of life. So you yep. have until Sunday to upgrade. After yep. that, you will no longer get security updates and you will be... All on your own. own yep out there in the dark um <laughs> yeah so figure out whether you want to update and do that quickly and yes. last uh, using FreeBSD update to go from 11.1 to 11.2 is very simple and uh, since you don't need to reinstall all of your applications and so on it's actually uh, very fast and easy only thing you really have to worry about is any custom kernel modules you have and making sure those are compatible Mm -hmm. Yep, 
And uh, last in our uh, little list here is the real-world performance advantages of NVDIM and NVMe, a case study with OpenZFS. This is uh, meetup actually, notes. what this is announcing is uh, the next Knoxbug, uh, the Knoxville, Tennessee BSD user group, will have their meeting Monday, October 1st from 6 to 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting talk. Uh, we'll hopefully get a little bit out of that, like notes or maybe some... Uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the talk being repeated at a conference, maybe. So that is of mm -hmm. definitely something people should go to if they're in the area. Again, this is October 1st, uh, 2018 at 1800 hours. Right. So um, this is actually given by Nick Princip, uh, who's the one giving the performance talk at MeetBSD. So yes, uh, you'll be able to see some of this at MeetBSD. Mm, excellent. So people don't miss that completely if they cannot make it to Knoxbuck. All right. Finally, feedback. Feedback and questions for this week. Uh, again, keep sending everything that you can't make uh, uh, work or if something is uh, burning under your fingers, send this to uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv. Also, feedback uh, about the show and uh, some things you always wanted to ask us. Then this is the address you want to use. First one is taught this week uh, with two nicks, one beehive, and a jail cell. Uh, he writes, hi, guys. I don't know why it has to be this hard, but I'm about ready to rip out what little hair I have left out. Okay. Uh, I'm simply trying to mix beehive and jails with one nick passed through to an OpenBSD firewall. All I want to do is this. First, create an OpenBSD VM with PCI pass-through. The purpose is the OpenBSD install as a forward-facing firewall and have it direct traffic to my other VMs and jails. Two, create and run a simple Linux VM. It should be sent and receiving to the internet and be accessible from the local area network. Three, three. Uh, create a couple of jails like VSFTP or DNS uh, crypt proxy. Ideally, they are reachable from the internet and local area network. Problems. Networking is absolutely not working in any respect. It's abysmal. Routing between the OpenBSD machine and TAP IGB1 card does not work. Can only access jails on the host's IP range. I was hoping perhaps you could help me figure it out. The best approach to do this is two NICs enough? Do I need to pass one and somehow VLAN the other? I don't know. Really quite frustrated. Thanks. Ah, with no configuration information, it's impossible to tell what you're doing. Um, I'm slightly confused because the topic of your email says one beehive and one jail, but you lay out that you want at least two beehives and some number of jails. Um, but yeah, I, without the configuration information, it's impossible to tell what you're actually doing here. Um, but yes, you should be able to, if you're passing one of the NICs through into a VM and then that VM has a second NIC, that's the regular tap type or whatever, that should work. Uh, if it's not working, it's your OpenBSD configuration that needs fixing there. Um, and then when the on the tap interface on the host, uh, you will have to bridge that, I guess, to another tap interface that goes to the Linux VM uh, and also probably pass IP addresses you want from that bridge into the jails. But again, without actually seeing how you've configured it, it's very hard to say uh, where exactly the problem you're having is. Yep. So start from scratch and don't do everything at once. Start small and then grow that 
that's my advice. If you do everything or try to do everything at once, make everything work together, that usually ends up not working. Right. So yes, uh, create the OpenVSD VM, PCI pass through the one NIC to it, and pass in, obviously, a tap interface or something. Get the running that working and make sure that packets you send come in on the NIC that goes to the OpenVSD VM. Go properly get routed to the, the virtual NIC in the OpenBSD VM and make it out to the tap on the host. Once all that's working, um, then you want to create a bridge and include that tap and uh, the tap for the Linux VM on it. Remember that you'll want the IP addresses to belong to the bridge, not the individual tap members. Uh, once you have that, reconfirm that packet sent on the physical interface, go into the Beehive or the OpenBSD VM, go across to the tap and show up on the bridge. Only once that's working, then try to make it right the Linux one. And only once that's working, add extra IPs to the bridge for use via your jails and make sure they work. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and in particular, like you mentioned IGB one, but you didn't tell us, is that the one you're passing in? Or is that the other NIC that you're not? And what? which one is the jail supposed to be using? The, the interface that's guarded by the OpenBSD VM or the internal one? What's mm -hmm. supposed to use the internal network, et cetera? There's uh, sadly not enough information here for us to tell you how to do it. Yeah. Make a little diagram and leave breadcrumbs for yourself, take notes, uh, yes. and then um, retrace your steps. I'm trying to remember the name of the website. Oh, where well, you could draw these little diagrams uh, yes. with ASCII art. ASCII uh, we had it in, what, in a show. Yeah. Um, the chat room will certainly remember. Looking at the chat room here. <laughs> well, they have a little bit of a delay when we record, but uh, yeah, we had it. I definitely ASCII remember it. Flow. ASCII flow. ASCIIflow.com uh, allows you to easily draw boxes and Ah, yeah, here we so go. On, and makes it easy to uh, to draw Visualize. little network diagrams as text. Uh, also, just drawing it can help you understand it better yourself and make you realize where you made an assumption that's maybe not true and so on. Yeah. Or let someone else look over it uh, in case you have some tech-savvy friends. Then they can probably give you, by, just by explaining it, um, some some pointers. Okay, let's uh, hopefully uh, that gives you um, the solution. Otherwise, send in uh, another uh, feedback question with more details like config files and stuff like that. All right, the next one is from Thomas about our deep dive section we planned in the future, uh, if there's enough interest in it. Uh, that's short and sweet, writing, hey, I would love for a deep dive segment to be part of BSD Now, but please also release the video as a standalone video in a separate RSS feed. That way, we can watch the deep dive by itself without having to search the video timeline after listening to the first part as audio only. Makes sense. That's good feedback, yeah. We get a couple of uh, people in the hallway track also uh, at EuroBSDCon talking about us or uh, talking about the show that they overall liked the show and then had some suggestions that we should uh, heed. Yeah, we'll I also try to incorporate a number those. of BSD Now t-shirts around the conference. Mm -hmm. Excellent work. And uh, yeah, this is the uh, the next one is from Morgan about uh, send and receive to manage fragmentation question mark. Goes like this. Hi guys, 
My company makes extensive use of BitTorrent Sync for internal data. The main server stores the data on ZFS datasets in FreeBSD. As you should. Um, in accordance with the open ZFS recommendations on BitTorrent, I've already set record size to 16K and redundant metadata to most. As you may know, however, data received by the protocol is often extensively fragmented on disk. Okay, I noticed so stop there for a sec. Okay. Uh, right. So because BitTorrent receives the files out of order, it writes, you know, ZFS always writes in a straight line. So it's just uh, all the blocks are written to disk in the order they're received. Um, meaning when you want to just read the whole file, your disk is going to have to jump around a lot uh, because the blocks are not actually in order. Mm. So this is file fragmentation because your data is not in logical order on the disk. Right, not ZFS uh, fragmentation. Yeah, well, so there's yeah, there's basically two different types of fragmentation outside of, it doesn't matter if it's ZFS or not. You have the file fragmentation, meaning the content of the files are not in logical order, and free space fragmentation, meaning that uh, the free space on your disk is made up of lots of little bits all spread out instead of, you know, all the data being at the beginning of the drive and having big range of free space at the end of the drive. Um, so that'll be important in a minute here. So continue. Yeah, uh, that continues the question. Um, I know that performing a local send and receive uh, of a data set can be useful for certain housekeeping tasks, like ensuring that a change to data set property is fully propagated. Does it reassemble fragmented files as well? Yeah, so when you do a send, as in the send stream, the files will be in logical order. Uh, so all the data will be straight line, meaning that when you do a send, it's going to put the files back uh, how you want them, and that's a good thing. Uh, the only issue is when you go to write it to the pool, it's all in a nice big chunk. Do Is your free space fragmented? If all your free space is spread out, then when ZFS goes to receive it, it's going to have to break up the new data and put it you know, in Where the, the size of the chunks of your free space. So the files will be less fragmented uh, because there'll be more linear and they'll be written in order, but you could still end up with quite a bit of fragmentation because your free space is split out. So when you go to read the file, you might still have to jump around. It'll be better than it was before because BitTorrent's really random and this will be not, um, but it still won't actually be perfectly defragmented unless you actually do have free space. So if your drive isn't very full, then you likely do have a lot of uh, contiguous free space. And so you'll be able to write giant slabs of data all uh, in order. And that means that once you switch all the data to being written that way, if you get rid of the old data set, then depending on how much other stuff was written at the time, you might actually turn your fragmented space into contiguous space as well, right? Where, where the old data was written, if BitTorrent Sync is the only thing running, then while the data is all out of order and eventually you'll free all the different pieces, yeah, uh, you'll get back contiguous free space. However, if BitTorrent was writing the data and another program was writing data at the same time, all that free space is going to have these little bits of the other data written in there, right? Log files or whatever. And so that free space is still going to be very broken up. Uh, and eventually your pool will get more and more fragmented. Mm. So ZFS send will defragment the files, but it can't necessarily defragment the free space. Yeah, that's in a different uh, way. But 
and and the fragmentation measure you get when you do zpool list is of the free space, not the files. Uh, there's not really a good way to measure the fragmentation of the files. With the free space, uh, the percentage number is, I wouldn't say misleading, but um, it's very hard to express how fragmented your pool is as a percentage. Uh, so they came up with an algorithm that's about as good as it can be. It's mostly what percentage of your free space blocks are made up of tiny blocks versus big blocks. So high percentage is bad. Mm. Okay. And that yeah closes with, might it be worthwhile to schedule a periodic task to perform a local send and receive to move the files to a fresh data set in an effort to manage fragmentation? And that would be pretty much uh, uh, so now. Yes, but there's some problems with that. Um, so if you snapshot the data, ZFS send it to a new data set, be careful of data written after the snapshot, which won't be included in the new copy. So as soon as the send's done, you don't want to delete the old copy and rename the new one into the name of the old one, because that'll have undone a bunch of data. Now it's BitTorrent sync, so maybe it'll resync it, but um, there's that. And uh, a couple other things. So uh, it depends. Key versions. Yeah. Uh, it it's, it's can be a bit harder to automate, because if, if part of this is copy all the data and destroy the old one, you really want to be careful with automating destroy the old one. Because if something does, you know, if you don't have good enough error detection in your copy process, you might not copy everything and then destroy the old one, and that wouldn't be good. Um, you could also possibly, uh, if you're just worried about defragmenting the files, you can also do this inside one data set without using send receive, just say rsyncing individual files or something. The way I took to doing this, uh, it doesn't make sense for BitTorrent sync, so it doesn't help you, but for regular BitTorrent downloads, uh, is I have a downloads directory that is a separate data set. And then the torrent client, when the download is complete, moves the file to the, the regular place. And so it defragments the file uh, that way, basically. Mm. And the downloads directory is generally empty every once in a while so it doesn't have any excess stuff yeah that's one way of dealing it uh, I was wondering whether you could also uh, like pop in a new disk like that's empty and exchange it with one that is already in there uh, no. when you those. do a zpool replace like that uh, it always writes it the data copies. exactly how it was on the other drive uh, yeah. uh, because all the block pointers have the exact location on disk in them, and that can't be changed. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, then, yeah, don't solve it at the pool level. Yeah, but, yeah, definitely it's a problem with that um, BitTorrent protocol that uses well, a different way of storing the files. The same thing is true of databases when you do random writes. Like, if you update a row in a database, you know, you write a whole bunch of rows, and then you go back and update a row, the mm. update is going to be at the end instead of where it was originally and so on. And so it's it's nothing specific to BitTorrent. Yeah, over time, things start fragmenting. Yep. Um, okay. You know, I, I've heard of other people having that problem. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, maybe there's in the future some defragmentation of what uh, whatever it is. But yeah, so far we have this answered. And um, last in this week's episode is Dominic. Uh, about hierarchical jails uh, and networking. Maybe that answers Todd's question. We'll see. Um, that goes, hi, guys. 
I'm also a long-time listener to the BSD Now podcast since episode one and started to thank and wanted to thank you guys for the great work you're putting in week after week. Thank you. I didn't start originally, but Alan and Chris did, and I just took over, and yeah, definitely, it's, it's, uh, we've come a long way. So thanks for your feedback. Uh, as you guys were able to help me out with all questions regarding BSD so far, I wanted to see if I could tap into your brains once more. Sure. Recently, I started experimenting with hierarchical jails and ran into some networking issues. So far, I was using a cloned L01 interface with aliases to make networking available within my jails, which worked pretty well. My new approach is to make parent jails with their own network stack for the children jails. The idea is to create an easy-to-deploy scalable environment with separate networking using ZFS templates. And the problem here is I have a connection to the outside world within my parent jail when I ping IP addresses directly, but I don't seem to be able to resolve DNS. Uh, so to create the parent jails, he's using IOCell with a custom kernel with the following option set. So that is SCTP, vImage, uh, RACCT, the resource containers, and RCTL um, that also controls resource consumption. Yes, that's resource accounting and resource container or control. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, they also have local unbound enabled in rc.conf and um, the bridge interfaces is configured and the, the yeah, is added also to the bridge, bridge zero. And after successfully creating a jail test one, I get the following output with ifconfig. So here's the output from ifconfig that helps us a bit more understanding how the networking is supposed to work. And that has the two members. Okay, bridge one is there. And there's VNet0 also. And unbound is set as the internal DNS on the host server. So that goes on uh, the... Yeah, that's a config file here. And uh, the default router on the jail is set to the bridge 0 IP, 10.0.0.1. And name server is set for that. So if config output of that is provided... And now he's stuck at this point and don't know how to go about it. So he was wondering if you guys, or like <laughs> you and I, have any ideas, any suggestions would be much appreciated. Uh, first thing I noticed is that bridge one doesn't seem to have any IP addresses on it. Um, it's not configured in this way. Yeah. Uh, it looks like you have the IP addresses specifically on like VNet one colon two. Uh, but it's definitely best practice to have the IP addresses on the bridge rather than the member interfaces. Um, trying to read through all the text here. Yeah, it's but this is better than just you know. Yes. Out of the blue information. <clears throat> this is concrete systems output. Uh, right. Let's see. BT one. What does the routing table look like inside the jail, I guess is the question. The test one jail. Can it see the yeah, the other interfaces or the other IPs? Um, yeah, and I see you have VNet0 with an IP address, and VNet1 also does not seem to have an IP address or be up in this case, but that's probably fine. Doesn't look like you're actually using it. Uh but your best bet is TCP dump and actually see what's happening where. Um, I'm a little confused on the host, what the where the internet is supposed to be. Like yeah, what connects you? The only configured interface you have 
is IGB0, which is configured as 10.0.0.1. So where's the internet supposed to come from? <laughs> I missed the, where does he say where the default gateway is set? Uh, default router is 10.0.0.1. Right, that's the default router on, on the jail, right? The bridge with zero. Uh, yeah, the oh, yeah, default router on the, the jail is set to 10.0.0.1. What's the default router on that, on 10.0.0.1? Like, where is 10.0.0.1 going to send the packet? I guess is the question. Mm. And is it doing that? Uh, because it's an internal address, you're going to need NAT uh, to be able to get that to a real internet. Yeah, you can use that with uh, PF and uh, do the NAT rules. Yeah. Or IPFW. It's quite yep. straightforward. Both. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Um, TCB dump on bridge zero on the host uh, and look at it. But most likely, um, either the default gateway is not set uh, properly on the host machine, or more likely, you are forwarding it to your router uh, on your whatever the host machine's router is, but the host machine's router doesn't know how to respond to 10.0.0 slash 24. It can't get right, back to, to the jail. It, it doesn't have a route to get back um, because it doesn't know about that network. So either you have to teach the default router about that network or have to use NAT on the host to mask those packets and make them look like they're coming from the host's IP address so that the router uh, will know how to get back. Yeah, so that they both can talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, but most likely, yes, on the router, that is the router for the host, uh, it doesn't have a, uh, a net, uh, a route back to 10.0.0.0.0.24. Yep. And uh, hopefully that will resolve it. Using a different it. subnet. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah, if you have other questions like this or a better solution maybe, then again, send everything that you find or would like us to cover in a future episode to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll be back next week in our regular show format and episode. Yep, see you next week.